0: Welcome to the How to Health podcast, and today I'm so excited to have a repeat guest, Ms. Carolyn Adams-Miller. How are you?
1: Fine. How are you?
0: Good. Thank you so much for taking time out of your morning to speak to us, and we're going to start the year off right, and you had written a goal, or excuse me, an article um, called Throw Out Your... Throughout what you know about SMART goals, the most effective goals have these eight things in common. And it was really interesting because a lot of us learn about SMART goals. I have an MBA, that was kind of the thing that you learned. You got to yeah. do this, you know, and all these crazy things. So I really wanted to speak to that about to individuals about, you know, incorporating any part of life, but it's specific, specifically about health goals. Mm-hmm. Um, so just for, in case people don't know, smart goals are specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time sensitive, but you had mentioned something is missing. Can you give
1: us an idea of what you mean by that? Yeah. So, um, Thank you for having me again. I really appreciate it. Um, And this is a favorite topic of mine um, because I've been passionate about understanding how and why goals get pursued and accomplished. So when I was at Penn 12 years ago, um, getting a master's in positive psychology, one of the things I locked onto was goal setting theory. And I'd never heard of goal setting theory. And I had all the goal setting books on my my shelves. I had a goal setting practice as do many coaches because it's a core competency. And goal setting theory knocked knocked me right off my, my, my balance. I don't know how else to say it because the minute you understand Locke and Latham's goal setting theory, you immediately understand that the R in SMART is not, um, does not make sense for most people. And here's why. When you talk about attainable or realistic, so I'll just use the R for realistic, one of the things you immediately realize is that in goal setting theory, it says that the best possible outcomes for both learning goals and performance goals are what we call challenging and specific. So challenging is not realistic. And right there, you just have to start questioning, why is this smart goal stuff um, still so prevalent? Why do people, you know, and I feel like it's goal setting 20th century, like law of attraction kind of goal setting. I think the 21st century and uh, given, you know, what we're up against and how challenging the world is, we really do deserve to understand there's a science to goal setting. And the best um, the best outcomes don't come from setting realistic, attainable goals. There's a place and a time for that. But the best outcome is always going to come outside your comfort zone. So I say throw out the R in realistic, and let's take a fresh look at what goal setting really means. I think that's absolutely 100% true. I
0: started medical school with three little kids. They were 5, 3, and 10 months. And people told me I couldn't do it. You're going to fail even if you got accepted. And I went on and and did really well and did fine. And so, if I didn't have that mindset of poo pooing what everyone else thought was realistic, and mm-hmm. even though it seemed unrealistic because no one, not very many people had done that, that I knew anyway, I right. think that would have been really disheartening and given up. So I think right on, challenging and very specific. But also, that you had talked about in that part of your article, and I'll put a link obviously to the article so everyone mm-hmm. can read that. Is that there's two conditions that relieve that puts you in getting subpar results. Mm
1: -hmm. What would that be exactly? Well, there's there's a number of conditions, but in this article, which was really an excerpt from my fifth book, Creating Your Best Life, um, you don't want to set low goals or no goals. And I think that's really... Um, Something many if not most people do without even realizing it. So in goal setting theory, we talk about no goals, low goals, and challenging and specific goals. And then there's performance goals and learning goals. So there's two categories of goals. But most people set no goals. And why do people set no goals? Because either they've set them incorrectly before, let's say New Year's resolutions, and they didn't work or they fell off the wagon within two to three weeks because they didn't have the right accountability. They hadn't upped their self-regulation. All kinds of problems uh, happen if you don't set goals the right way. And then they've decided goals don't work. So they set no goals. And they say, you know, I'm just going to react to what comes up. Why well, have a plan. Um, life isn't about just being goal-oriented. It's about just being. And that's, you know, it sounds good, but it's not realistic. Because it's like being in a car and trying to get to an airport with no map. You don't know where you're going. You're just reacting. You're a ping pong ball in life, mm-hmm. and so no goals opens you up to being an actor in someone else's play, or challenge. You know, sending, um, handing out programs for someone else who's on the stage of life. And I just believe that we need to take control, have mastery over our environment. And set challenging and specific. So there's no goals and there's low goals. Low goals I think a lot of people also set and I think that's the realistic goals. Those are the attainable goals. Those are the goals you know you can um, achieve without a whole lot of extra effort. You know how to do it, you know um, what's involved and you don't want to work that hard because frankly you don't want to fail. Mm. um and so those are the low goals and and here's interesting research that i didn't know I, until i think even after creating your best life came out um one of the things we find is that if you set mediocre goals or low-hanging fruit goals at the end of the day guess how you feel if you attain those goals mediocre you feel mediocre because deep down you know that you didn't do you didn't do everything you could have done. You didn't leave it all on the floor. You didn't find out what you were made of. And I think people are afraid of finding out what they're made of. So they set no goals or low goals.
0: Hmm.
1: I like that. And I like the ping pong ball in life.
0: <laughs> I'm going to start using that with people. It's like, quit being the ping pong ball. <laughs> and yeah. really, I mean, you're just, the, you're just letting other people dictate where you're going because yeah. you're just reacting. Wow. Yeah. cool. So that was fantastic. Right there, I could think we could probably just talk about that for an hour. But going on to the next one, you have measurable and then have opportunity and have opportunities to actually produce feedback, which I think is really important. But mm-hmm. when you talk about being measurable, what do you mean
1: exactly? So there's a saying, that which cannot be measured cannot be achieved. And what that means is that if you're going to set challenging and specific, so specific is, is an important word in this, challenging, challenging and specific goals, it means that the so the highest achievers among us and the ones who want to find out what they're made of, they, they set benchmarks for progress. And what that does is you're figuring out, is your strategy working? Is what I'm doing? Is how I'm using my character strengths? Is this getting me closer or further away from where I want to be? So people who want to kid themselves, people who don't really want their efforts to be measured, will have these slippery things like, um, I, want to, I want to get better in the next three months. Um, I'm going to try harder. But what does that mean? And so you have to have discrete measuring tools. For example, if it's a learning goal, you want to allot, let's say, five hours to finding you know, 30 new ways to attain a goal, 30 brainstorming sessions. You want to um, interview a number of people to find out what's out of the box thinking. So that's very specific. Five hours, two hours, 30 solutions, um, talking to 10 people, studying you know, 10 YouTubes, um, uh, going to webinars. Those are all specific. If you want to set a low learning goal, you would say, I don't know, find one new solution. Now talk to three people, not 10 people. So that's the measurable, measurable part of that. If we're talking about performance goals, where you know what it will take in your, case to achieve something that you've done before, you want to have very measurable metrics because you know what it will take to get there. So let's just take swimming. I had swim practice this morning and I, you know, train with a Garmin 7, 735 XT watch. Why? Because As long as I'm going to be in the pool, I'm going to measure my progress. I know exactly how fast I have to go on what intervals with what rest time in order to attain a certain time in a meet. And there's no point in going in there and just saying, I'm going to do my best. I mean, you're shooting for mediocrity. And so if you've done a goal before, you want to measure how close are you getting based on what you know will get you where you need to be. So I hope that's understandable in terms of learning versus performance.
0: Absolutely. And practice makes perfect, right? I mean, it goes back to the old saying, you know, if you, those who plan to, or fail to plan, plan to fail. I mean, it's just, it's just your roadmap. And then you got to determine, okay, I made it to this rest stop. Here's the next step. Let's
1: sit back Mm -hmm. and reevaluate and determine if I need to take a different path. Absolutely. And I would even improve upon that saying, which is perfect practice makes perfect. Not even practice makes perfect, because there's something that most people know about now, deliberate practice, which I talk about in Creating Your Best Life. And that's Anders Ericsson's work, and it's just fascinating work. Um, but what you want to do is you want to practice with a specific kind of um, performance in mind. And what we find is that you don't have to do, let's say, four hours at the piano virtuosos, you know, prodigies, people who are really um, talented and who work very hard do perfect practice. They do the best they can in, for example, 90 minutes. They don't do four hours of, you know, I'll do a few scales here and I'll try to do a better job in this, you know, largo section of this concerto. I mean, no. Um, And I've, I've changed my swim training to be what's called race pace training. And what that means is I'm doing perfect technique in short intervals as long as I can until I fail. And so what I'm doing is perfect practice to try to become the best I can become, not just garbage yardage. That's the phrase in swimming, garbage yardage. I can go in and swim 3,000, 4,000 yards. But if I'm not doing the best possible technique on the best possible interval, then really what am I doing? I'm just kind of paddling around. So basically just making the best use of your time. I mean yes. practicing
0: those skills that you're gonna be utilizing when it really comes to when it really matters.
1: Yeah. And that's a cornerstone. If you're gonna be setting goals and, and preparing yourself to succeed, this is a cornerstone right there. Now there are all these other ancillary factors that matter. You know, who's around you, the priming, et cetera, et cetera. But you've got to get this piece right from the get-go, or you're really um, shooting yourself in the foot and making, you know, crippling yourself uh, and making it harder to become your best self. Hmm.
0: So, in the, in the realm of, um, let's say, finding a, a better health habit or something that someone's going to use mm-hmm. to improve their overall health, where would that be like a practice? Would it be, can you give me an idea of what might be a good solution there?
1: Is it okay if I talk about my eating disorder? Yes. Yeah. Please, no, please, go ahead. (laughs) Well, because when I started to recover in 1984, so that was 33 years ago, I can honestly say that after seven almost eight years of bulimia, I really didn't know how to eat. I didn't know what a portion was. Um, I didn't know how to deal with cravings um, that came up between meals. Um, It was a learning goal for me. So it wasn't a performance goal yet. It was a learning goal. Um, How am I going to eat? Who am I going to spend time with? What foods do I need to have in the house? What restaurants are triggers for me? and on and on and on. And so one of the things I had to do was figure out what are the things I need to do to succeed? So I studied winners. Who, who was in recovery? What did they do? And so um, when people set health goals like overcoming an eating disorder, breaking a habit, um, stopping smoking, um, lifting weights more often, the first thing you have to figure out is what does success look like for me? My goal was complete recovery. So I had to figure out who has it. And then I had to unpack it. What do they do? What are their habits? How do they do it? And then I had to break it down into hourly behavior goals for myself. What will I do to make it easier for myself to succeed? Now, that does include working on self-regulation, which is willpower. And so the science of willpower is very, very interesting. You want to be in as many environments that don't tempt you as possible which is why I had to be thoughtful. What, what are the environments I'm putting myself in? Do I wanna to go to a mall for lunch and pass 30 fast food places? Or do I wanna be in a more isolated environment where I make it easy for myself to succeed? Um, who are the people I spend time with? Are they people who have healthy habits or not? So it goes to the environment, it goes to who you spend time with. Um, And I think those are the most understudied aspects of goal, pursuit, and accomplishment when it comes to changing your health habits, is you have to create automatic behaviors that are triggered by your environment. And that's called if-then scenarios. Um, You know, it's implementation intentions is the fancy phrase. Mm -hmm. And that's Peter Goldwitzer's work, which is really, really interesting work. And what he found is that you will triple your chance of achieving hard goals, like stopping smoking, learning to lift weights, et cetera, et cetera, if you make the environment push you towards goal-directed behavior. So what you're doing is you're saving your own emotional energy um, and making it easier for yourself to initiate the change you want by saying – I'll do, I'll go back to my swimming. What I do is I have a ringtone on my phone that makes me happy. It usually has the ha- the word happy. When I wake up, it's either um, f- what's Pharrell Pharrell Williams? Is that uh-huh. his name? Uh-huh. Okay. So I've had that for a while. I've had the Harlem Boys Choir, Oh, Happy Day. But what I like to do is wake up to a song that triggers me to think the word happy, which then gets my feet out of bed and on the floor at 4.15 in the morning. So that's an if-then scenario. If my alarm goes off with with the word happy in the song that's playing, I will get up and start walking towards the kitchen for a cup of coffee. Then I will go to swimming. So what I do is I become automatic. And that's the goal. You want your habits to become automatic, and there are all these interesting ways to make it easier for yourself to to make them automatic.
0: That, that is brilliant. I love that. I'm going to start using. it. I'm going to, I'm going to set his uh, song "Happy." It's good. I love it. it. Well, it makes you smile. So why not start your day smiling? Right. <laughs> There's one caveat. One,
1: one caveat. Yes. That is, we adapt to even good things. So yeah. that's Sonia Lubomirsky's work. So even something that's brilliant and makes you happy and it works for, I don't know, months, we do adapt. It's called the hedonic treadmill. We adapt. So you want to be changing it up every now and then. So if that, you know, start, starts to lose its impact, move to something else that has the same if-then component to it. If I hear this, then I'll do that. It's like, a, it's, like a, um, it's like a mental behavioral contract. It really makes a difference.
0: Wow. I love that hedonic treadmill. <laughs>
1: Yeah. You have the
0: best phrases on earth.
1: <laughs> well, these, so, these are, that's common in positive psychology. I didn't come up with that one.
0: Well, I'm still a baby infant and in learning positive psychology, but as far as, but it makes sense though, because I know when I run, mm-hmm. you know, five years ago, those songs in my playlist do nothing for me. Right. So I had to replace them. It makes complete right. sense. Right. Runs the challenge, you know,
1: the distance or whatever, the pace. That's, oh. Now see that that's it's actually Sonia Lubomirsky uses running and running routes. Uh, in her research as one of the examples because she lives in California. And so if she's running on a beautiful, beautiful run and she can see the ocean and there's you know, nature and the rest of it, she says, look, even I adapt to these beautiful running routes and I'm doing the research and I get it. So I have to change my route every now and then. Yeah. And something really interesting about novelty, the brain loves new things. It grooves on novelty. And I even read some research Saying that this is why we love hot peppers, you know, because when they explode, our taste buds explode, our brain explodes. It's like, wow, this is new, this is different. We um, we love it, and so you want to bring novelty into your life as often as possible because when you're stale, nothing new is happening in your brain. It's not exciting anymore. So even good things have to be changed up on a regular basis.
0: And that could, I guess, you'd have to be careful because that could almost be addictive. In yeah, at the same time, because I like to move around.
1: <laughs> right. Well, look at my fingernails. I mean, it's like, I need constant excitement and stimulation. I have ADHD, which is my secret weapon. Quite honestly, it is absolutely not a problem for me, but <laughs> I do need to kind of like, ta-da, here I am. It's got to be new and different and exciting, but it's it is. It's my secret weapon. That's fantastic. Oh my goodness. Well, it's a great
0: a segue into exciting and magnetic um, yeah. about the goals. What, what do you mean exactly by that?
1: Well, um, one of the phrases we also have in goal setting is that we want to have approach goals, not avoidance goals. And so even the language we use when we're describing goals, am I approaching a positive outcome or am I trying to avoid something I don't want to have happen? So you have to take a look at what is, what are the words I use in describing the goal pursuit that I have. Um, so you want the excitement of an approach goal, something that literally you know, lights you up. And that also speaks to the intrinsic component of the best goals. So exciting goals are ones that stimulate your passion. Um, they light you up. They're, they're goals that no one else has assigned to you. Um, these are things that you know, if you don't at least attempt them, you will have regrets. And so that is the excitement and That we really see in people who have the quality of zest, if we're going to talk about the Via Character Strengths um, test, which is really my go-to free Character Strengths test with Marty Marty Seligman and Chris Peterson created it. Um, The quality of zest is one of the five strengths we see in flourishing people, quite often higher than uh, lower. And so people who have this quality of zest has, have a joie de vivre that's very infectious. And that's one of the things we see with magnetic goals is people become zestful. It's like they're excited by their own lives instead of you know, basically starting to die while they're alive. And we see, this is what, This is what's so interesting to me about the quality of zest, Um, because there's been a debate in the positive psychology world about zest and goals. And one of the things we find is that for children, this quality of zest is very, very high. It's usually top five when you're um, somewhere, you know, young. But it starts to dip to bottom five in your 20s. People start to really edit themselves, you know, play it safe, not go out of their comfort zone but we don't want life to be like that. And our, result, and our goals have to actually magnetize us so that we aren't living an unzestful life. It's one of my top three. So I'm excited about that. That's awesome. And so you know, I'm young. <laughs> well, I think that's probably one of the reasons why you've tackled such an incredibly hard goal is you bring more energy. When I'm talking about going to medical school, yeah. fact, one of the many hard goals I know that you've shared with me, you've accomplished, but um, Zest must have been a big piece of why you were able to keep going and push through when you were exhausted. Well, that and, yeah,
0: definitely. But I think the approach goal, what you're describing almost for me, in my mind anyway, would be that the reason I wanted to go to medical school because my sister was so ill and then a doctor, you know, changed her life. And at such a young age, such an impression I was 10, Mm -hmm. it was like, I want to do that because that is just so cool. And I had already started imagining myself doing that. So it's there. I just was had to walk myself to it. So I think that's that approach goal. Is, is, is that kind of what you're trying to describe is like it's a goal that's pulling you forward?
1: Yeah. And so that's a beautiful story, by the way. Um, and the fact that you were doing it, not because you thought you could make a lot of money or have a certain status in life. It was more, I want to do something that's going to make the world better, that can make you know, people like my sister's life better. I want to heal other people. You're approaching something that feels very positive and intrinsically motivating to you instead of avoiding, let's say, being um, economically disadvantaged as an adult. So you're trying to avoid the trap of poverty. I, I don't even know how you want to language this, but it's very clear that you saw it as something that was pulling you forward that you saw in your head which is also a big part of goal accomplishment, is this visualization piece, being able to see yourself doing these things. And so there's a lot of research on why women of color, for example, get stuck at certain levels of goal setting in corporate environments. It's because they can't visualize themselves attaining that next level because they don't see people who look like them at the next level, at the next level, at the next level. So... Hmm being able to visualize who you want to become. You can't hit a target you can't see is also a piece of having these magnetic approach goals. Interesting. So, but then I think the big thing to look at too is these
0: avoidance goals. Yeah. Could you describe? Because that? and I interviewed one guy, he was a cartoonist and he would actually draw these cartoons, submit them to newspapers and oftentimes they would be rejected. So he had a wall of failure and Hmm. he used those to propel him forward because he hated it so much. <laughs> I said, You know, that's really interesting. For me, I couldn't use a wall of failure. I have to have a wall of where am I going. But I thought it was really interesting. But I think majority of people are like myself who, if I don't want to think about negative things because that will just, I think, deflate my whole
1: process. What do you, you think? Know, that's a really interesting example. And I'm, I'm thinking because. That is not an uncommon motivator for people. And I'm not sure it's an avoidance goal. I think it's actually a motivational technique. And so what they're doing, it's like um, there are a number of quarterbacks in the NFL, for example, who um, were, um, it wasn't that they were trying to avoid not being recruited because they're already past that. It's the stimuli or the stimulus I'm going to show people what I'm made of because I'm approaching being the greatest quarterback of all time or something. So they still have an approach goal, but the thing that's motivating them is a loss. So Hmm. that's different than saying, I'm trying to avoid getting another rejection letter. Hmm. Does that that make sense? Yeah. You're just, you don't want to,
0: you're trying to avoid pain. Would that be more along the lines of that?
1: Um, I think people who are not defeated by rejection, have a more positive outcome locked into their brains because they believe they can attain that. Hmm. So I think they're still being propelled forward by something because they have hope. Why do they keep going? They're hopeful. And hopeful people are optimistic. That's why the via character strength is called hope, optimism, and future-mindedness. But it's interesting because they're resilient enough to not allow the rejections to defeat them, which doesn't mean they're trying to avoid more rejection. It just means I'm going to show them. Because I have this vision of myself that I believe I'm capable of accomplishing.
0: That's really interesting. Cool. All right. And so your next part you talked about was being tied to your values and vision, which we kind of spoke around already. But Mm -hmm. what would be the most important thing when you bring that out? I mean, because for me, when people speak values and vision, it's very broad. And I think you can almost dilute it too much. So what do you think about that? How, how should we define our vision and values? I mean, where do we even start?
1: That That's a, a whole day workshop. <laughs> so I'm going to keep it really simple. And I'm going to go back to the via character strengths. And so what I think works best for me and for my clients to simplify it and not turn it into like um, a huge dialogue of philosophical ideas is... Um, When you set a goal, I always ask people like, "What's the so what of that goal? Why Why are you setting that goal? Where will it take you? How will your life be different? How will the world be better? How will the people around you be awed and elevated and uplifted by watching you pursue these goals, or even the attainment of the goals?" Um, So we go through that, and then I'll say, "And how are your values and your character strengths reflected in the pursuit of this goal? For example." Somebody who has bravery, courage and bravery in their top five, they will often set goals that involve um, sometimes being whistleblowers, um, standing up for the underdog, um, doing what's unpopular, but something that they know they feel called to do. Um, I have uh, that character strength in my um, top five. And in hindsight, what I've realized is that value was pretty obvious when I wrote Uh, My Name is Caroline, 30 years ago, about how I overcame bulimia. And that was at a time when nobody got better and nobody talked about it. And it was just very verboten. And so in hindsight, you know, I realized, well, well, I guess that was courageous. So my value of telling a story that other people might have been afraid to tell um, reflected my value. So what you want to do is sit back and say, and how did the things that I hold dear, honesty, courage, Kindness, um, being a lifelong learner, how are those reflected in the goals I'm pursuing? Because you're more likely to A enjoy the goal pursuit, B, feel authentic in the pursuit of those goals, C, achieve those goals um, when your values are all wrapped into the the setting of the goal and the pursuit of the goal.
0: That's brilliant. So you just would ask the so what and then how you, your strengths are actually being used or reflected in then therefore you're being true to yourself
1: because that's your nature already. So that makes it easier. So okay. it's, it's, it's the thing that you turn to most naturally. It's the way you see the world. Your top five or even your top seven strengths are usually the lens through which you see the world. So it's not that you don't have those other character strengths. Like let's say gratitude is at number 10 or 12 or whatever it is. It's not that you're an ungrateful person, but it could be that you see the world through the lens of being curious or wisdom or zest or... Um, teamwork. So you're more likely to see things and relate to them through the prism of other strengths, which is what gives you a special place to start because it's unique to you. And that's what will allow you to move forward with more comfort and authenticity. So I will also put another link to the via strength
0: characteristics so because that I had all my whole, my entire family take it as well, which was wow. really very interesting. And like my husband and I are like opposites, which I thought was
1: different <laughs> now that's an offline conversation
0: <laughs> 25 years it's been great <laughs> yeah,
1: and it, that's not a bad thing it's just you yeah. have to appreciate who they are and right. how those strengths emerge in ways that um, make them their best selves and you have to yeah. honor that and there's something called the Michelangelo effect where we sculpt other people with words that honor who they are and how their strengths emerge
0: And I think that's really important because I think that's one of his qualities. He's very good about supporting other people where he can be easily, I can be very robust in my thoughts and my statements and my actions. So I need to be very careful about some of the people in my family because my, my, my children are very similar to him. So I need to be
1: Bring it down a notch. So do you have honesty in your top five? Yes. Okay. So to have honesty, bravery, do you have bravery? Yes. Okay. So, you're, you're, Oh, you're, you're, you're pretty, I, I can kind of read your strengths while you're talking. So let's <laughs> say you have honesty, bravery, and zest. But they're One of the, things, the overuse of some of those strengths can be this full-throated, enthusiastic honesty that um, takes courage to express to other people. And if somebody, let's say, has, um, oh, I don't know, kindness in their top five, what they might feel is that you're being unkind. <laughs> exactly. You have to know your strengths. And the yeah. VIA Strengths Test is just so exceptional. It's really my go-to test for goal setting. It's just million uses in becoming not just more successful at your goals, but happier. Yeah, and it, it really brought to light some of the
0: things that other people maybe criticize how I respond or interact and how I can be, you know, in a good way. Not, in, I meant to be a good way, but apparently received as not as a little obnoxious. So I'm like, come on, let's go. You can do it. <laughs> Like, you have to understand people where they're at, Lori. Calm down. Like, okay.
1: Right. And we can overuse our strengths, and that's when they become weaknesses. Exactly. Um, that's another conversation. That's another <laughs> week-long conversation. I have apparently a lot of issues. Let me move on to the next we one. All do. Right.
0: So I'm I'm good with it. So the other one is that this is what I really find interesting too is non-conflicting and leveraged. Yeah. What do you mean by that? I think I thought that was brilliant because I've never even really thought about goals that might conflict
1: ah so this was this was another thing i was really proud of (laughs) Mm -hmm. i mean if i'm going to say something that i'm really proud of when i wrote creating your best life um it was my capstone project at the university of pennsylvania so what i did for my capstone was i was uh, i connected for the first time the science of happiness with the science of goal setting and, and success and what that meant was that for the first time the mass market learned that the um um, the pre- all success in life is preceded by being happy first, not by v- vice versa. So we don't become happy after we succeed. We succeed after we flourish first. And so in the process of writing that book and coming up with all these theories, I dove so deeply into archives of academia. And I, I found this research that I don't think anyone had ever published before. And, and it's about goals and conflict. And so I use the best possible future self exercise as part of helping people to begin to get in touch with who do you want to become. If failure is not an option, if everything goes as well as possible, who do you want to be in a year, in five years, in 10 years? And so one of the things that best possible future self Um, does for you is it suddenly illuminates goals in conflict. And many of us don't know that we're walking around with these ping pong balls in our heads where we have two goals that are very important to us or three or whatever it is. But until we sit down and do something very thoughtful like who do I want to be in 10 years, we don't realize that the pursuit of one goal um, at the same time as pursuing another valued goal, is, it's going to bring us to a complete standstill. Why? Because they're completely in conflict. And I'll give you an example. Um, let's say you know someone goes to college, and they're very sociable, and they want to be part of the fraternity or sorority life. And their goal is to be the head of this fraternity or sorority, to be um, popular and outgoing and con- to connect with people socially. And they have another goal, which is to get into medical school, you know, and to be that studious, you know, um, 4.0, you know, student who is a high achiever who does very well. Now, those are goals in conflict for most people. So what that means is you have to very decisively look at these goals in conflict because, because the research shows that once you become aware of the fact that you've got two conflicting goals, you have to very consciously up in your head decide one is moving up. One is moving down. It's not to say that this is an unimportant goal that you need to toss to the side. What you're saying is, given the context of who I want to be in one year, five years, 10 years, this goal here is more important than this one. So I'm gonna table this one and I'm gonna pursue this one. And in the process of moving that up, what it does is it frees up energy, both subconsciously and consciously, and you're, you then become, you know, zoom out of the starting gate. So um, the, the um, leveraged goals means that once you've identified this dilemma, then what you need to do is set a series of short-term goals that then as you accomplish those short-term goals, the accomplishment of those goals make it more likely that you're going to achieve l- those long-term goals that are important to you. What does that mean? So let's just take... Um, let's take medical school. Not that I know anything about it, but um, let's just say that you want to go to medical school. You've decided, I don't, you know, I love to be sociable, but, you know, being present in my sorority, that's, that's probably not the most important thing to me right now. This is more important. So what's a, an, um, a leveraged goal? One would be to take the prerequisites to apply to medical school. Two, take an MCAT prep course. Three, sit for the MCAT. Four, apply to medical schools. Um, five, um, you know, um, pick one that will give you the highest likelihood of being able to specialize in the area of medicine you most want to specialize in, or whatever it is. But those are all short-term leveraged goals. If I do this, it makes it more likely I'll do this, da-da-da-da-da. And that's really important because too many people, and I would have to say this is a shocker for many of my clients, do not realize they're walking around stalemated because they have goals in conflict. So best possible future self quite often makes it very apparent what's in conflict. And when you mean by best
0: possible future self, that's your writing technique of saying, here, here I am in 10 years, if everything went my way, what I would want to be, Right. then seeing what you're doing right now and how they meet to that, that future
1: self. So we probably don't have time to go into best possible future self, but I will say that's a free download on my website. So people can just go download that work worksheet. Um, My website is carolinemiller.com and it's a free worksheet. And I find that this exercise is pretty well known in positive psychology, but it's so elegant and it's so simple. And the the outflow of positive um, impact from just doing this writing exercise is so extraordinary. And it's on this, you can see on the worksheet, all the things that start to happen as a result of just sitting and being thoughtful. Who do I want to become if failure's not an option? Um, and so that's, it's a writing exercise. I prefer that people do pen and pencil for reasons, or pen and paper, for reasons we don't have to, have to go into here. But people have done it on computers, and there's a whole college course called Maps of Meaning that's had really amazing success with first-generation students doing, doing this exact exercise. Wow. No, it's it's
0: brilliant because I've done it and I, I will put that link as well. I'm going to have lots of links for you. All yeah. right. And we move us to the next one of written down, writing down, right. pen and paper. So right. why is that better than let's say not writing it down, just thinking, I, I know I want to lose 10 pounds. Why do I need to write it down?
1: Because there isn't a lot of research on this, but there uh, there is some that shows that the process of taking something out of your head and putting it onto paper, preferably pen and paper, um, involves a deeper structure of the brain and uh, than just thinking, thinking about it because when you think about it it 's still somewhat ephemeral it 's just out there it's like it 's like an idea, but when you anchor it on paper, I think what it does is it becomes a behavioral contract and, and that is there is research on behavioral contracts, and um, you are making a vow to yourself in many ways that you can then post. It can become a prime. You can, so you can prime your environment by posting it. A lot of people use that very, very successfully. One of my first examples in, um, Creating Your Best Life was about the CEO of a company who decided he wanted to break into Inc Magazine's top 250 companies, fastest growing companies in the country. So what he did was he posted it outside of his office and he posted all of his goals publicly. Everyone who walked into his office had to stop, look at his goals, and then come in. What's the value of that? The more people who know about your goals, the more likely you are to have many brains working towards helping you to accomplish those goals. So Hmm. writing them down can create this other opportunity to post them, but simply writing them down, it just makes you, are making an agreement with yourself and you're cementing it in a way that, you know, we're finding is, is slightly more powerful in the brain. Yeah. And I really like that, but because
0: what you're describing is, is this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to do it. This is how I'm going to reward myself if I succeed, which Mm -hmm. is kind of the thought process. But I love that he put that out in public in bringing other brains around. It's like a brain trust for your goal.
1: Yes, and so there 's an asterisk on that one too, which I think we 're going to get to in a minute but yes. um, uh, when you when you write something down, I really do believe that you go from just thinking about something to making it more definite, and there 's just an enormous amount of personal value, and the research that i 've seen more and more in the last few years about. What happens when you actually write something down um, you you remember it differently you also it 's very interesting research on simply the act of setting a goal changes your behavior one second after you change your, after you write it down one second and that impact can last as long as twenty five years and it 's wow. fascinating to me because when you concretize a goal in writing what happens immediately, immediately, whether you know it or not, is you start to sift through in your head, how am I going to do this? Mm -hmm. Um, Who do I know? What do I not know? Where am I going to go to access this? What course do I have to take? Who do I have to talk to? So on and so forth. So what you do is you immediately, almost like a horse running in a race with blinders, you immediately are putting blinders on and trying to match what you know, with what you want to accomplish. And you said something really important there, which is, how am I going to do it? Because it's not enough to say, I want to go here in the future. because you have to do this thing called mental contrasting, where you go into the future with best possible future self, and then you back up to here and go, okay, here I am today. I've looked in the future. Here I am today. How am I going to get there? And how am I going to get around the obstacles? Because people who start with a healthy appreciation for the obstacles that they're fairly certain they're going to encounter and who have a plan to get around the obstacles tend to persist longer at their goals. Mm -hmm. So- that's an important piece. How am I going to get around the obstacles that are coming up? But that mental contrasting piece is very, very important. It's been found that if you just sit here and say, okay, today, 2017, uh, I want to be there in a year, now, what am I gonna do? That's more overwhelming to the brain than going into the future first and saying, wow, look at this great future I want to create. I can see myself doing these things and living in this place and giving to these causes and making this kind of difference. And then coming back and saying, here I am now, how am I gonna get there? That simple difference. Mental contrasting makes can make a profound difference in whether or not people get overwhelmed or not in pursuing their goals. That is very true. It- And even in
0: my own life, seeing, I mean, so when I started at 10, I came from a family that didn't have college degrees. You know, they didn't, we didn't have much resources of anything. So how did I go about it? I reached for people that knew in my small town, the local family doctor, going ahead and knowing that I had to graduate at the top of my class to get, money to go to school because I wasn't going to be able to pay for it otherwise. So those are the things that I remember. And it took me 18 years before I actually started medical school from the age of 10 because I got married. Had wow. kids. So that really, I think that's really powerful for people when you start thinking about what those goals are in that mental contrasting. I think it's really important saying what are those obstacles? Because even as a child can do that, I think it's really powerful for an adult. So, and then in your study, and I'm just in this one little bit here, you also mentioned in the article, that even reluctant people or people who really struggle with that, this writing down, this behavioral contract was very powerful for them. And they blew past others who didn't do that.
1: Yeah. And I think this is one of the things that really made me so appreciative of of the fact that there is a science to goal setting is um, before I went back to Penn in 2005 on my website, because I really have always wanted to to be a goal setting coach, be somebody who really helped people set and pursue and accomplish the hardest goals. Um, I had this thing called the Harvard Study of 1950, which I had learned from some Brian Tracy best selling goal, goal book. And it talked about how the Harvard class of 1950, like um, when they went back for some reunion, the people who had the highest amount of success were the 2% who had written their goals down or something. Well, you know, it turned out that was an urban legend. There was no truth to it. And I was so appalled, not just that I had had it on my website thinking it was a fact, but that so many people We're running around thinking there was some absolute truth to this, which is why, and they built companies around it, which is why it was so important to me to get to the bottom of that written goal piece that I write about in Creating Your Best Life, that is part of that excerpt, because there is some research that writing it down makes a big difference, but nothing like the impact of this Harvard study of 1950 claims. It's a piece of how important it is to set and pursue goals, but it's not enough. None of these things are enough in isolation. It's a package of behaviors and agreements with yourself and others that do make the difference.
0: Awesome. And then you, which in agreement with others. So then we start going into the accountability, self accountability and shared accountability. Kind of goes back to that CEO, I think example. So what are the best ways or how should someone start thinking about accountability? I mean, should they let it frighten them a bit almost? Or I mean, what should they do?
1: Well, I think the minute that you speak a goal, write a goal down, share it with somebody else, I think you're opening yourself up to feeling vulnerable. It's like, what if I don't? This is why people lowball their goals. What if I don't accomplish it? I'll be ashamed, I'll be embarrassed, whatever it is. However, um, we want to be accountable, not just to everyone, but to the right people. And so this is where women really get in trouble um, because 84% of women are said to have frenemies, friends who are enemies in their circle, you know, even in their first line of defense. So why do women do this? Um, Women do this because they don't want anyone to think they're not nice. They're so afraid of, um, you know, cutting off people who are passive aggressive or active destructive or whatever you want to call it, that what we do is we end up enduring more comments and um, um, actions that cause us to go off course with our goals than men do, which is really interesting. So that goes to the piece about who do you want to be accountable to? You need to be somewhat ruthless about the people you choose to have in your life because This is not a dress rehearsal. This is our life. This is, this is the time we have been allotted, one day at a time, to become the best we can be. And what that means is you want to be surrounded by people who uplift you, who elevate you, who are what we call positive energizers. They make you feel motivated. They make you feel competent. They make you feel hopeful. Um, and so this is research out of the University of Michigan, the Ross Business School. When you go into any organization, you can map out what's called the energy hubs. And these are the people who motivate and inspire other people makes them feel like they're 10 feet tall. And so if we're not surrounded by people and accountable to people who believe in us, who see us for who we want to become, they understand who we are at our best, what our weaknesses are, and they make us accountable. They say, have you done what you said you were going to do? This is what coaches do. This is the best role coaches play in people's lives, um, is helping them be accountable to their dreams and goals for the future. But not everybody. There is a TED Talk I've been interviewed a lot about, and I think it's Simon Sinek. It's somebody who says, don't tell anyone your goals. Well, that's not true. The research is very clear that you want to tell the right people your goals, not just anybody. So you want to be accountable. I think everyone should be in a mastermind group. Um, select the people around you. It doesn't even have to be friends. It can be acquaintances, but it can be needs to be people who want more in life, who want to play bigger and who want to help other people. They're givers, not takers. They mm-hmm. want to help other people achieve their best. So,
0: And I think too, you have to be <clears throat> a little careful just from personal experience and seeing others as well, that you have let's say you have goals and you shared that. And so people almost want to ride your coattails. They, they seem to be that they want to be supportive and, but all it is really is they're taking, what can this do for me? What can this do for me? And that is gotta be one of my biggest pet peeves. I'm like, I'm fine with helping others, but what else, you know, let's make this a team effort. It's just not always take, take, take. So I think you do. You're right. I love the fact that you said
1: ruthless about people in your life. This is not a dresser. Women, school. women in particular, and um, that that goes right to the heart of Adam Grant's message in the book Give and Take, which is the most successful people end up at the top of the ladder of givers, but givers also end up at the bottom of the success ladder. And why is that? Because givers who give to takers for too long. Um, tend to not attend to their own dreams and goals enough. They're just so busy um, sometimes overusing their kindness strength that they're just giving, giving, giving to people who are just bloodsuckers. So you want to be a giver, but you want to be giving and supportive of of people who are grateful and who also give back. So it has to be a reciprocity kind of um, set of behavior. But I just really want to emphasize that women undermine themselves constantly by not knowing the research on accountability and there's one right way to respond to someone else's dreams and goals and this one right way is called active constructive responding and so this is the litmus test if you share a dream or a goal with somebody who does not respond with curiosity and enthusiasm run run as fast as you can Don't share your embryonic dreams and goals and passions with people who are not responding with curiosity and enthusiasm. Because the research shows that the first person you share these with, if they don't respond with active, constructive responding, curiosity and enthusiasm, you will abandon your goals in the coming week. You will or you'll code your goal as a negative. And so we have to not be asleep at the wheel in our lives. We have to wake up and say, how are people responding to us when we share our visions and goals? And the and the curious, enthusiastic people, put them in a mastermind, meet with them monthly, do it on shared screens. I do one with shared screens, do it in person, but do it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And Dr. Seligman,
0: because I'm completely in thralled with positive psychology. Um, he wrote the book flourish, which really explains a lot about that. And mm-hmm. I love how they work with the uh, army and have Im- implemented that. It's just fascinating. Yeah. So yeah. I tell people, I, you might find this really interesting. I was in Phoenix, Arizona at a conference and before the conference started, I was at a Starbucks and I was reading flourish cause I'd read it on the plane. I was like, they, especially the health part. That was fascinating. Um, <clears throat> I had set it down and I was, eating my oatmeal. And this lady came up to me, she goes, is that a really interesting book? she goes, sometimes, Ah. you know, she goes, I said, I said, absolutely. And she goes, um, she goes, because sometimes when I come into Starbucks, I actually like to scan and see what people are reading, but I really wanted to talk to you because I was looking it up on my phone because I saw that on your table. And she goes, I'm actually a police detective in Phoenix. Yeah. And she goes, I would really, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to learn how to use this maybe in this field. And I said, that would be perfect Someone wow. who's using that in a, a field of you know, detective work and, and interrogating people. I don't know all the things, but she said we have to use different techniques than what we're doing. And um, I said, well, wow. be fascinating. So I thought, well,
1: how cool is that? So I you that's might get interesting. This. You know, off the top of my head, I don't know of any MAP graduates in the last 12, 13 years who were police, mm. either detectives or police officers. Wow, that's interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: So I thought it was fascinating. It, it made me think for quite some time about how that could be used. Um, so anyway, I thought you might find that interesting, but, yeah. and your last one was capable, excuse me, capable of stimulating the state of flow. Yeah. And I think this is
1: very, very, very important. Can you explain what that is? So when you're pursuing something you're passionate about, particularly something that is not easy, but that's hard, you do stimulate this state of flow that Mihai sent Mihai coined 20, 30 years ago. And that is when you're in, in almost a state of suspended animation where you're so engaged in what you're doing, you're living the engaged life, which is part of the PERMA acronym. The engaged life is one where time stands still because you're so engrossed in what you're doing and fyi we don't get engrossed in things we're doing that are too easy because those just kind of um you know it's kind of we're half in half out because you can kind of multitask or be absent-minded and you know but when it's too hard when it's so hard that you have no hope of accomplishing a goal Um, you become anxious. So there's this optimal state where you're pursuing something that's meaningful to you, challenging, where you're using your character strengths, your top strengths to pursue this valued goal. That's when we get in a state of flow. And it's one of these fascinating states where it's said that we become more individuated for simply having been in that state. And when I wrote the book uh, 10 years ago, eight years ago, um, one of the things that was you know, swirling in the research at that time is we were saying that the millennial generation wasn't accustomed to going into states of flow. They, they were more, you know, commonly into junk flow, um, like video game flow or shopping, the pleasant life flow, but not necessarily doing hard things because I think we did strip hard things out of raising the millennial generation. So they weren't accustomed for the most part, not everybody, of course, this is never a blanket statement, but percentage wise, it wasn't a generation that grew up feeling the state of flow that comes from doing hard things over a long period of time. Mm, I agree. So, cause when I was in,
0: uh, going back to the medical school, there's so many examples of this <laughs> having small children. So I did an MD and BA and I'm studying. I mean, there could be utter chaos. I could show you a picture of me holding a four-year-old or five-year-old on my chest. And then there's two of the boys running around with balloons and I'm just Doing my thing, I love you it. Do, you almost forget what's going on, and and I think people—it's almost like an engaging conversation, but with yourself or what you're doing. So yeah. you know how you can have a lot of people around, but you're at a party or something, and you're speaking with somebody, you're just yeah. so connected, but you're connected with what your activity is. But and I love that too. I'd never heard of junk flow until your article, but you're exactly right. People who are just doing mindless things, Facebook or you know, video games, TV. I mean, I call them, they're just time sucks out of your life. And there's a reason we don't have a television in our home. So so I haven't had one for over a year. It's been great. Now mind you have to be careful because there are other things that can easily fill that in, but, um, it's been really good because it allows me to step back and think, you know, if there's something crazy going on, I'm going to hear about it eventually.
1: (laughs) interesting. Yeah. So you're also protecting yourself from being inundated with bad news because if it bleeds, it leads and that's the rule. And I I think with CNN having these breaking news alerts, just literally all the time, um, it's just like this cortisol spike. It's like, are we at war with North Korea? I mean, what's happening? You know, why is breaking news? Right. Protecting yourself from a lot of really negative (laughs) and <laughs> right. fear that the rest of us might be too prone to hear about. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's
0: that's important because I recall, I guess, I don't know, it was 2001. So my kids were little still, um, you know, when the towers happened in 9-11, mm. I remember being so sucked into that. And then that's kind of where this, I became addicted to, um, yeah. and I would say the word addicted because I would want to watch the news and see what's going on. Cause I was going to become active duty. I went into the air force after the medical school. And so as I went in, I was like, what am I getting myself in? And so you almost do, you almost become addicted to, you know, it's kind of like someone had mentioned, I can't remember where I heard this, but it was like, there was a, there was a chain of a thousand islands and there's one shark attack every 10 or 20 years, but if they're all, and they, they, nobody knew that they, all through these thousand islands, there's this one shark attack every 10 or 20 years. So the fishermen go out and they're like, well, this happens on occasion, rare. They might've heard about their grandpa getting attacked by a shark, but then someone comes in and puts a television and connects all of them. And on the news, they hear about every single day, there's a shark attack here, even though it's irrelevant because it's a thousand miles away in this chain of islands. We Yes, exactly. And so, um, I think there's a, it'd be interesting to see studies on what television and that type of news and that always trying to grab the attention of people by you giving us those negative, um, yeah, if it bleeds, it leads stories, what that's doing to us mentally and with our success and depression and anxiety. I think it has a lot to do with it.
1: Well, actually, I think that has been studied because I referenced some, some of that work in getting grit because, okay. Because, you know, one of the reasons why it's said that this millennial generation has not um, become as resilient as maybe previous generations, some of it started with the milk cartons, you know, um, with the missing children. Um, So Jacob Wetterling and some of these early examples of these kids who were snatched. And so kids grew up with the milk cartons and the missing children. Now, statistically speaking, Um, We are now safer than previous times. I mean, we have fewer um, homicides in many um, different areas. This is not my specialty, but I will tell you that the fear and contagion that goes on when you always are exposed to this has led people to become more um, isolated and, and more scared and more fearful, and this has led to safe spaces in universities and trigger warnings and microaggressions. And, you know, frankly, what we have is a generation that has grown up afraid to climb trees, and some of it has started with with the dumbing down of playgrounds, where it's like you're it's too unsafe to go down a metal slide, mm-hmm. and then you've got the milk cartons, and it's it's just really interesting what has happened from this. So it is all connected. And, and that
0: was really interesting. It makes me wonder about people and who have, so we have the, the largest number of obese individuals. We have these yeah. horrible health at, you know uh, habits. But but people are afraid. They're using excuses not to move forward and take control, and you know, getting some grit and saying, "I am responsible for what goes in my mouth." And yes, there are some, you know, food has been changed chemically to make me more enticed and more addictive. But at the same time, this is a choice. But then we give them excuses, you know. And and doctors are no, we're we're enabling this because we don't demand better from our patients. We just write a prescription and say, "Well, my excuse is I don't have time." So. I mean, I think, honestly, I call for revolution for physicians to rethink how they're approaching. You know, we have to go through yeah. different things, but we need to really be those encouragers. And,
1: and role models. And there's, right. I don't know if you've heard of this doctor. She's, I've, I've seen her written up in a number of places in the last year where she doesn't just talk to her clients and patients about, you know, better health care and eating better. She has a kitchen attached to her office, and she will walk them into this kitchen and show them how to cook. A variety of healthy foods, and so she's walking the walk by doing mm-hmm. what she's doing. If you could interview her, yeah, I yeah, absolutely. I've probably interviewed quite a few. of The well,
0: before I, where I was, I actually created a lifestyle clinic. I actually got trained. It's called Food for Life Training, and so I actually did cooking demos with patients. And did you? Yeah, absolutely. So and there's walked the, with the doc programs. You know, I'm sure you've heard of those. And no, there's, yeah. So um, I can't remember the gentleman's name the top of my head, but he created a walk with the doc. And so basically doctors can sign up. Um, they, they give you a platform to help you get patients to sign up. And then a doctor has to commit to walking with their patients on Saturday. And they give a little brief talk about a health topic. And then they walk for a mile or whatever, wherever they wow. are in their communities. So it's, I think that's really important. Physicians need to be leaders and role models in their society. But so many of them are tired and burn out, and we don't take yeah. good care of ourselves. And that's where I think it's so fascinating, this resiliency training with, yeah. the, the, with the military because physicians and healthcare providers, nurses, you know, your first responders, they also have trauma in a sense, yeah. because if you think about someone who's working in the ER, someone who's working in an ICU, I remember the first time I had to tell someone they had, you know, an incurable disease or I watched someone die. Those are not natural states that you occur on a daily basis. And so, if we can teach our medical students, who my daughter's a medical student, know if we can teach that that generation to be resilient and be yeah. and showcase to their patients how to do that, that could really do some
1: change. But. Yeah, the role modeling, this goes to self-efficacy theory and Albert Bandura's work, that one way to make you or have you begin to believe you can accomplish certain goals is to have a proximal role model. Somebody in your environment, you can see them. Um, And and this is why I think Maryland had more Olympians than many small countries uh, or many countries in the most recent Olympics is because I happen to live in this hub of Great sports clubs, great training, and these—you know—this the, one of the top wrestlers in the world knows other people who are amazing swimmers, and it be- creates this contagion of. I know that guy. I, I go to church with him. And you know what? If he can do that, I can do it. So you once you can see a role model or see other people doing extraordinary things, you begin mm-hmm. to believe, well, you know, I can do it too. So absolutely. that's a wonderful program. A lot of wonderful mm-hmm. programs you're talking about. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And that, that kind of goes to like baseball. So my youngest was uh, big into baseball. And when we lived in Virginia, when I was stationed in at Langley Air Force Base, there was a ton of, um, you know, and... Uh, and the major league baseball players who came from that area because wow. they grew up in that area so that really I think you're you're onto something definitely.
1: You just grow up seeing somebody and you think, my God, they're just a normal human being too. (laughs) They eat the same cereal I eat. They go to the same club. I do that. You know, it's interesting that nation's capital swim club is where Katie Ledecky swims and all these other amazing swimmers. Mm -hmm. And so I know a lot of these people and I just spoke to nation's capital and it's fascinating. They're, they're swimmers because it's fascinating because when someone Elaine over has made Olympic trials, you start to think you can do it too. Mm-hmm. And that hope, that that hope changes the way you think and behave. Mm-hmm. And so the more we're exposed to role models, there's this program I, I've heard about, and I'm going to check into it some more. It's called um, um, Classroom Heroes or something like that. And what it does is it's, it's a lot of um, great athletes, Olympic athletes, who are Skyped into classrooms all over the country where they see an olympic wrestler or they see a diver or they see a swimmer they see an ice skater and these students can see them on these huge screens and they can ask them any questions they want and so this idea of um being able to see a role model coming into your classroom via skype it's like whoever thought of this is absolutely brilliant because we need to be exposed to role models and I'm just going to go back to women in particular, because it's clearly the age of women with the marching and the hashtag Me Too and the rest of it. For women to overcome so many of the things that are in front of us as challenges, we have to be exposed to other stories of women overcoming similar challenges. And this is where storytelling can make all the difference between an accomplished goal and an unaccomplished goal. We need to hear and see stories unfolding around us of similar achievements.
0: Absolutely. One hundred percent. Well, I know you had on a time crunch, and that was fabulous, and thank you so much for our, your time and sharing with the audience, and I'm going to put all the links, so everyone, if you guys want to find Carolyn and all her resources, I'll have that in the story in the show notes.
1: Was there anything, last bit of advice for this new year? Um, um, well, uh, I do have a workbook that walks people through all these steps, so that's on my website. It's it's 14.99. It's just a month-long course that I synopsized into 100 pages, so... I think people might enjoy that. Uh, I think the, the last thing I would say is, you know, go bigger than you think you're capable of. You know, you don't want to have any regrets when you're looking back on your life. And the people who have the fewest regrets, according to what we see about what people say in hospice care, the people who have the fewest regrets are the ones who left nothing on the floor and they went for broke and they took risks. So take bigger risks than even you think you're capable of this year, because that's when you find out what you're made of and whether or not your goals um, uh, have a chance of being accomplished. So do hard things. I love that. Do hard things. Maybe that'll be the year of doing
0: hard things. Yeah. Why not? (laughs) I love it. Thank you, Carolyn, again so much. And everyone, thanks for listening. Thanks for having me.